tonight is our final lesson um, from the book of Acts. Um, but before that, um, I just want to say that uh, now this preacher likes apple pie. So, Eliana, um, I know chocolate chip cookies and chocolate's always in season, right? But apples are in season right now. And I like apple pies. And this week, as luck would have it, is Thanksgiving week, which means you'll be out of school and you'll have time. Anyway, you get my point. I didn't get a chance to teach Eliana at Covenant. Would have loved to be able to have taught her. Um, but your voice is fantastic. And, uh, and uh, thank you for that song. Tonight's message, uh, I couldn't have picked a, a, a better time for the message because the title of the message is Be Passionate About Serving Christ. And I couldn't think of any other two great examples than Terry and, and, uh, and Dan about being passionate about serving Christ, how they've done that tirelessly. Um, and, and so the way that the Holy Spirit just weaves things together is, is obviously you understand that he's in control and we're not in control of things and he is, has a plan for everything. But we've been talking about the timeless values of the early church and in this series we've been asking the question, if a leader of the early church were to show up here in our congregation, uh, what would they say? Would they be surprised? Would they be uh, disgusted? Would they be confused, frustrated, joyful? I mean, what kinds of things would they think? What kind of advice or counsel would they give us? You know, do we value the same things that they value? And so far we've talked about three other individuals. You can put them up there on the screen. Peter, he's told us that we need to daily rely on the Holy Spirit. Barnabas, he's told us to keep the mission moving forward. And Stephen, he's told us to be prepared to witness. But now we come to uh, the last fella, uh, the Apostle Paul. And it's hard to give an assessment of Paul because Paul has just so much for us. And no one message or one sermon on Paul, as Pastor can tell you, uh, is, uh, is, is enough. Um, but tonight I want to focus on this part of Paul about being passionate about serving Christ. And so I think about, have you ever noticed that American culture is an expert in being passionate about the wrong things? Um, I, was, I was reading about Mozart. Mozart, a classical composer. Some of you may recognize the name. Uh, I like to listen to a lot of Mozart. Uh, it allows me to think clearly when I need to think clearly. But did you realize that Mozart wrote over 800 different compositions in nearly every available genre at the time? And so I wonder about the greater legacy that he might have left if he had written all 800 of those compositions in the classical genre. Or consider from the Bible an example um, from the prophets of Baal in the Old Testament in 2 Kings if you know the story, Elijah challenges them to a contest between the false gods that they served and between the true God that they served, or the true God that Elijah served. These prophets were passionate about their God, uh, so much so that they began cutting themselves. They were sincere. 
But sincerity and passion are not signs of spirituality. They were passionate about something, but it was passionate about the wrong God. In fact, if we were to boil it down to simple terms, it seems that humanity tends to be passionate about really only one thing, and that's themselves. And you can go all the way back to the beginning in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve were tempted in the Garden of Eden. It was about themselves. It was about how we could be much more than what God wanted, how we can be rulers of our own roost, how we can be masters of our own domain. And, and sin has entered the human race, and mankind has, has, is forever saddled with this tendency to trust themselves more than God. And for an unbeliever, that might make sense. But for a child of God, we should, we should know better. In fact, in recent decades, as we've seen a deeper shift into our culture one that's been moving from being in love with ourselves to kind of redefining ourselves. And in a recent book, uh, Carl Truman, he kind of surveys some of the past thinkers and philosophers, demonstrating how their teachings have been instrumental in the downward spiral of some of our cultural beliefs. And he tracks it all to the concept of redefining self, is what he does. And when you set out to redefine yourself based upon your feelings, or based upon your emotions or your thoughts, rather than being created in the image of God, is what Scripture says, right? You can transform yourself to whatever you wish. And so it makes sense that transsexual, transhuman thinking has entered into our culture. That's why it's so important. It's so important for us just to remember the simple truth that we are created in the image of God. We are not created to choose our own image based on how we think or how we feel. Our, our connection to Christ is that we are imagers of God. We are not imagers of ourselves. We are created to be imagers of God. And this assault on Christianity, it, it seems to be that it's an assault on the idea that man is created in the image of God. And that's the fundamental truth. And, and if we throw that out, then mankind will be free to create whatever image of himself he chooses. So you look at the culture around, and it makes sense. Sure, it's feel like mankind is already headed in that direction. From the book of Ecclesiastes, I think that Solomon would say it best. He says, we're often guilty of chasing after the wind, is what he's saying. And that's why it's vital that our passion, and what I'm getting to here, is our passion in this life is not wrapped up in ourselves, but in Jesus. And I can't think of a better example than Paul. Because Christ is the standard. It's the, he's the definer of our true selves. Everything we do, if not filtered through the teachings of Jesus, has the potential to derail us. And we've got to stop chasing the wind, chasing every fleeting passion that comes along, and start chasing after the only thing that can bring us lasting change. So for Paul, he was passionate about serving Christ. And he spent the rest of his life chasing after that one single goal. That's what he did. I'm going to spend my life chasing after Christ and everything there is involved to it. So as we've done with the other four individuals we've talked through with Peter, with Barnabas, with Stephen, and I apologize, Stephen, you probably felt like you're at the other end of a fire hose. I know there was just a lot of information, a lot of things I wanted to say about Stephen. Maybe another time we'll do something more on Stephen. But Five statements from the life of Paul. The first one is this. 
So you can put that first one up there. The first one is that Paul was eternity-driven. He was eternity-driven. And turn your Bible to Acts chapter 9 and in verse 20. And I'm going to read this little section right here in Acts chapter 9. And each one of these statements, as you know, have references by them. I'm not going to read all the references, but just references to write down so you can go later and read them. It's unfortunate that when we look at the life and personality of Paul, you know, we get this feeling, I think, sometimes that he's abrasive, he's rough, he's coarse, he's type A personality, he's, he's a steamroller, you know, get out of my way, I'm going to run you over. And we don't know what Paul looked like or acted like before his conversion experience in Acts. But after his conversion experience, we do know what happened and what it looks like. It says so here in Acts chapter 9 and in verse 20. After his conversion experience, listen to what the text says. The text says, immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, is this not he who destroyed those who called on his name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priest? Paul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Now, after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall in a large basket. And the story goes on, verse 26. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and didn't believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas Trusty Barnabas, we've learned about him, took him and brought him to the apostles. And he declared him how he had seen the Lord on the road and he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists. But they attempted to kill him also. And when the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. It's, it's this point that Paul becomes this relentless, relentless proclaimer of the gospel message to anyone that would give him the time of day. Immediately after his conversion, he turns around and starts just going after anybody who would give him the time of day. And from this point um, in Acts until the very end, he does not stop. He does not let up. He is relentless. And if you look at things from Paul's perspective, maybe he feels like he's wasted the first half of his life. Maybe he feels like, you know, this is a course correction that I need to make, and I need to do it quickly. He's now been shown the way of the Messiah, and he only has a little time to make impact for eternity. There, but yet you have to see everything he does is sifted through the lens of eternity. When eternity is your lens, the meaningless and trivial things of this world are not worthy of your time. And that's what Paul was saying. Paul's cold-hearted nature that sometimes we like to point out wasn't cold-hearted at all. It's actually very compassionate. Because the ones that Paul most wanted to hear his message were his own Jewish brothers. His, his own Jewish brothers and sisters. And when you trace the missionary journeys of Paul as you read through the book of Acts, when he visits the town, the first place he always goes to is that synagogue. It's the first place he goes to the Jewish population. Why? Because his heart is for his Jewish people. In fact, he says something in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. He says this, I thank 
Jesus Christ our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. See, the message of the gospel itself is always eternity-driven too, right? Because Jesus came, became a man to die on a cross so that we could be reconciled back to the Father so we wouldn't spend eternity separated from him, right? See, God wants for every person to spend eternity, there it is again, the word, with him. Paul understood the very message of the gospel was eternity-driven, and therefore, if he's going to be an effective proclaimer of the gospel, it would require an eternity-driven mindset. But the problem we have today is many of us are guilty of proclaiming an eternity-driven gospel, but we're still chasing after the wind, like Ecclesiastes reminds us. Paul was an eternity-driven. That was his mindset. I mean, compared to eternity... Compared to eternity, the little bumps and bruises of this life, what do they really matter? What do they really matter? They don't. A second observation from Paul. Quite simply, Paul trusted in God's plan. And there's a couple of references up there, Acts 9, Acts 18, Acts 23. You know, as the references show, the Lord spoke to Paul at least three distinct times about his plan to send Paul to testify before kings and leaders. God had a plan. He had a strategy for Paul in which the gospel could be proclaimed to the highest levels of the empire. He had a plan. And Paul was going to be the mouthpiece. And he does that. And we really don't have any indication that Paul balked at God's plans, kind of like Moses did when God said, you're going to go back to Egypt. And Moses said, what? <laughs> right? But we do know that God at least spoke to him three different times and gave him reassurance that this is the right plan. And that's not uncommon. You know, sometimes we need reassurance from God that we are following his, following his plan, right? It's nice to know you get reassurance, you get confirmation when you're following God's plan. It's sort of like walking down a trail. But then as you get deeper into the woods, you notice that the trail starts to fade. And you're not sure, should I go further and get lost or should I turn around and backtrack and go back? We had a, had a similar experience of that about a year ago when my family and my Texas family, we were uh, in the uh, eastern part of West Virginia in Dolly Sods, and we were getting in down a trail. And the trail got to a certain point, and it started to disappear. And I was like, where's the trail? Where's it going? And so, you know, I have a map and I have a compass and, and you know, that man-guided direction system, right? <laughs> so we go and we go further along down the trail. I'm like, I just, I just have a feeling about this. Like, I think that maybe we should turn around and go back. And, and you know, the rest of the crew were like, oh, we got to go all the way back. We just came this far. I just was uncertain. There wasn't any signs around the trail. There wasn't any indication. Go this way or go this way. We weren't really prepared to bushwhack, you know, to get to a certain spot. So we had to go all the way back, and we affectionately call that, call that, um, that time the, uh, the virtue hike is what we call that hike because we had to come all the way back. But there were other things that happened during that hike that make it much more of an interesting story. 
But needless to say, God didn't step back with Paul and say, okay, here's what I want you to do. Good luck. I'll see you at the end of the trail. Uh, you know, God was actively encouraging, actively reassuring Paul all along the way. And to be honest, you know, most of us might not continue down the challenging path if God were not there, you know, reassuring us along the way. Uh, we would be like, no, I'm out of here. Uh, I'm stepping back. Psalm 23, great passage. The Lord is my shepherd. He leads me. You know, God definitely had a plan for Paul to testify before rulers and kings. But for us today, God's plan for us is not complicated. It really isn't. God has gifted each believer with the gift of the Spirit. It's called your spiritual gift. God's plan for you is that you exercise that spiritual gift for the benefit of his local church. That's the plan. And that gift might be helpful in other contexts outside the church, but its primary gifting, its primary design is to be used in the context of serving the local church. God has a plan for you. He's gifted you with something. He's going to be there with you, helping you the entire way. That's part of the plan. Paul was eternity-driven. Paul trusted in God's plan. And then number three, Paul invested in people. Acts 15 Colossians chapter 4. You know, from the very beginning, Paul understood that the gospel is about God's love for people. I mean, that's what it is. In the course of Paul's ministry, there are many names, right? Significant. Apollos, Aquila, Priscilla, Barnabas, Luke, Mark, Silas, Timothy, Titus, you know, Ananias, Demas, Epaphras, Epaphroditus, Erastus, Gaius, Lydia, Onesimus, Onesiphorus, Philemon, Phoebe, Stephanus, Serbonius. I mean, you can go down through the list. There's tons of names of people that Paul came into contact with. Some had close relationships with Paul. Others did not. Some stayed by Paul's side. Others were disloyal. Some were friends. Others were foes. He knew it was involved in relations. But the point here is that I want to look at this from a financial perspective. Paul was a master at diversifying his portfolio. And we, we, we hear that a lot. At least I hear that sometimes a lot on TV. Buy gold, diversify your portfolio, right? I hear those things a lot on TV. Paul knew, he knew that the team concept of ministry is the right strategy, okay? And he knew that some people were highly beneficial to the advancement of the gospel. Others served a temporary purpose. While others didn't return the investment at all that Paul first wanted. But he knew that the concept of ministry has got to be team-oriented. I mean, even the Godhead, the Father, the Son, the Spirit are team-oriented, we could say, right? They operate as a team. Now, I can hear some of you saying, you know, I'm introverted. People suck out all the energy out of my, out of my life like a vacuum, right? And then extroverts here, people give me energy, they're the fuel that keeps me alive. You know, but let's remember some basic facts about humanity. God created people. God created responsibilities. Excuse me. God created personalities that differ. God is a designer himself. God knows that some people struggle with relationships. God knows all of this. None of this takes him by surprise, right? And when we think about the term invest, it's often colored by our context, right? Investing carries the idea of devotion, of time to something that you expect will give a worthwhile result. 
when you save for your retirement, right? You're placing money in an IRA, some, something that will gain you interest, you hope, right? A return. The expectation is that the balance in the account is going to be greater, you know, when you retire. You might invest in a business venture or in real estate. You might choose to invest whatever you choose to invest in. The fundamental principle is that time is required, right? Time is required to produce a favorable outcome. You look at the Apostle Paul. We like to see all this high energy, right, investment in people. And it seems like these results were produced so quickly, right? And then when we look at our own lives, the people that we invested in say, what's wrong with my methods? How come, man, look at all this stuff that's going on with Paul. How come he was able to do all this stuff so well? Am I using the wrong methods? Don't I, do I not have, like, the secret? Remember when we looked at Barnabas, how he and Paul had a fight over John Mark. Remember the first leg of the missionary journey? With Paul and Barnabas, John Mark defects, leaves the group to go home. Second ministry journey group is being put together. Barnabas says, I want to take John Mark with me this time. Paul says, nope, 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 we're not taking him. And they have this sharp disagreement, remember that? 25 years later, in the ministry of Paul, Colossians chapter 4, he realizes and he says in the text that John Mark was a good investment. But Paul, even Paul, Paul was not patient enough for the initial investment. Paul looked at the immediate results in John Mark and he didn't like what he saw. He's like, no, 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 I, I, no, I don't have time for this. I don't have time for this. He didn't give enough time. Have we written off people because they're not producing the results we want in a specific period of time? Is a lifetime investment in one person worthwhile? But it's not just time, it's consistency that people notice. You know, you can be consistent over a short period of time or over a long haul. You know, my relationship with my neighbor, I know is going to be a long haul type of consistency. Was my time wasted if she never accepts Christ as her Savior? Absolutely not. Because Scripture tells us that we're called to be witnesses regardless of whether they accept or reject Christ. Jesus talked about this in one of his most famous parables, the parable of the sower who spreads the seeds of the gospel. Let me read you this little paragraph. And this is what Charles Spurgeon, who's writing about this, the famous preacher, says. He says, If he, the farmer, knew where the best soil was to be found, perhaps he might limit himself to that which has been prepared by the plow of conviction. But not knowing people's hearts, it's his business to preach the gospel to every creature, to throw a handful on the hardened heart and another on the mind, which is overgrown with the cares and pleasures of this world, he has to leave the seed in the care of the Lord who gave it to him, for he is not responsible for the harvest. He is only accountable for the care and industry with which he does his work. If no single ear should ever make the reaper glad, the sower will never be, the sower will be rewarded by his master if he had planted the right seed with careful hand. And he goes on, our duty is not measured by the character of our hearers, but by the commandments of our God. We're bound to preach the gospel whether others will hear or whether they will not listen. It is ours to sow beside all waters, he says. Let people's hearts be what they may. The minister must preach the gospel to him. In other words, Jesus was saying, you need to diversify your portfolio of how you spread the seeds of the gospel. We don't know what the investment in a particular person might bring. That's not up to us. That's up to God. We just have to 
have the responsibility to invest. Let's put this into a bigger perspective. Jesus decided to invest his life for the human race, knowing full well that some people would not accept his free gift of salvation and spend eternity separated from him. Yet he knew it all, and he decided to invest his life for humanity anyway. When you look at it from that perspective, you realize, wow, maybe I need to, do, maybe I need to invest in those people, not knowing what the results will bring. See, when you leave, it wasn't a Charles Stanley says, you know, obey God and leave the results to him. 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 That's what Jesus is saying in this parable. Leave the results to him. And so Paul, even Paul sometimes got impatient. Even Paul sometimes, when the, the investment he had in this person didn't return like he wanted to, got upset and got frustrated. The point is that we have a responsibility to spread the gospel in many different ways. Lots of different ways. That's why as a church, we have so many different ministries. The shoebox is just one example of a way to spread the gospel to an area of the world that we'd never get a chance to be, ever, period. So many ministries, so many opportunities to spread the gospel. Paul was eternity driven. Paul trusted in God's plan. Paul invested in people. And then a fourth observation here, Paul didn't let opposition quench his spirit. And I have the reference up here in Acts 16, the famous um, Paul and Silas um, in prison. Um, but whether before or after his conversion, Paul's not new to the world of opposition. He's not. You know, there's opposition coming to us as Christians, as believers in Christ. Christ said, expect it to come. Peter reminded us it's going to come. When you tell others there's only one way to eternity with God, I guarantee you're going to create opposition. I mean, Acts 9, the plot to kill Paul. Acts 9 again, a second plot to kill Paul. Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas are driven out by Jews. Uh, Acts 14, Paul stoned and left for dead in Lystra. Acts 16, Paul and Silas are beaten and thrown in prison. Acts 17, Paul's forced out of Thessalonica and Berea. Acts 19, in Ephesus, the craftsmen are upset at the loss of revenue because of Paul's preaching. Acts 21, Paul is seized by the Romans, remains under house arrest for the rest of Rome. Oh, and by the way, he's shipwrecked on the way to Rome, too. Right? I mean, the book of Acts and, and, and all of Paul's travels, he's constantly in opposition. And we look at our lives and say, wow, that is so much, so much, so much, so much opposition. I mean, he's constantly, constantly being opposed. But you know what? So are we today. We just may not see it as clearly as we see it here in the book of Acts. And sometimes we forget that part of being passionate about something means that we're going to have to sacrifice. Paul was passionate about something. He was willing to sacrifice. He was willing to endure. Our English word passion is derived from the Latin passio, which simply means suffering. That's what it means. We're going to love Christ and his gospel so dearly that we will not shy away from any form of suffering. Any worthy cause or mission requires some form of suffering. I'm sure that Dan's back has some suffering. Right? With all the boxes. My back would have lots of suffering. And my feet would have lots of suffering. Right? Physical suffering. But it's worth it. Because you know what the result could bring. The final week of Christ on earth is called the what? The passion week. Right? The week of suffering. And unimaginable pain. But Christ didn't let the passion, he didn't let the agony get in the way of preventing him from willingly going to the cross. Just like Paul. Didn't let countless painful experiences 
prevent him from, from following God's plan. He did not let those things. Yes, I know they hurt. Yes, I know they're painful. But when I think of Paul's ability to keep pushing forward in spite of all the opposition he faced, I find myself thinking back to the Psalms, right? The psalmist is committed to the word of God, but seems like he's living in constant opposition. The enemies of God are all around him. They're at his throat. They're, they're waiting for him to do something, to pounce on him. There are numerous psalms where the psalmist is crying out to the Lord for help. He's beaten down, battered by the world, but he always goes back to God for his refuge and his strength. And i got to move quickly. The last one, the fifth one, Paul valued the church. And I don't have a reference up there because... You know, we could put Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, 1st, 2nd Timothy, Titus, Philemon. Not Hebrews. Maybe. Okay, you get the point. Simply put, he valued what Jesus valued. You know, Jesus gave himself for the church. One day Jesus is coming back to get his church. It's clearly seen through all of Paul's missionary journeys. He was about the business, what? Of establishing churches, right? He would go to a town, he would establish the church. He would go back, he'd visit the church. He'd write to the church. All the 12 New Testament books that Paul author were written to churches about church matters. And if you don't know this, then I don't know what you're doing on Sunday mornings as pastors preaching 18,000 messages from 1 Corinthians, right? <laughs> and I hope you know that I'm being dramatic with 18,000, exaggerating, Right? I'm sure he didn't imagine he would preach that many messages through 1 Corinthians. But when the Holy Spirit moves, when the text is telling you stay here, you, you, that's what you do. You stay. You park it, as they used to say, park it, preacher. Paul is addressing church matters and church issues in 1 Corinthians. I mean, and they got a lot of issues, right? <laughs> they do. At least seven times, probably more in Paul's epistles, he expresses longing to be face-to-face with the churches that he loved. At the same time, he repeatedly reminds us, for those who are privileged to be together, come together, be in service, face-to-face, nose-to-nose, maybe not that close, smile-to-smile, ear-to-ear. You know, one of the constant features, too, of Paul's epistles is his thanksgiving for the churches. He thanks them for their profession of faith, for their gifts, their prayers, their love for Christ, their love for other believers, their partnership with ministry, their loyalty, their steadfast, their growth. Do we use our prayer times to thank God for our church? To pray for its leadership? To pray for its members? To pray, to pray for people that are on our hearts? You know, Paul loved the church. He loved the church. Christ loved the church. He would do anything for the church. I mean, Paul, when he started out establishing all these churches, I don't think he really understood what an impact he would have come, you know, centuries, centuries later. I don't realize. He just kept going. He was passionate about serving Christ no matter where it took him. If it meant establishing a church here, that's great. He established a church here. He went to some towns and guess what? They didn't like him. <laughs> they threw him out. He goes to the next town. He dusts the feet off his, dust the, dust, dust the feet. Dust. I get it right. The dust, he shakes the dust off his feet. I'll get it right. There it is. And he moves on to the next town. Peter's told us that we need to daily rely on the Holy Spirit. 
Barnabas has said, keep the mission moving forward. Stephen said, be prepared to witness. Paul says, be passionate, be passionate about serving Christ. When I look at all four together as one, I can't help but see how much they valued Christ. Because Christ was the one who tethered all of these four people together. And he is tethered so deeply that when you look at their lives, you don't see them, you see Jesus instead. And why are we fooling ourselves into thinking that this life is about us? It's not. About our accomplishments? It's not. Our identity is wrapped up in the person of Christ because we're Christ's followers, right? We're Christians. I mean, how much more basic can it get? The richest man to ever live, Solomon, right? He had everything. And in the end, contentment can only be found in God. The poorest man to ever live, Job, who had everything taken from him, in the end, contentment could only be found in God. So I say this. Christ must be who we value above all else. He must be our value system. He must be our worldview. Looking at the world through any other lens is confusing, is chaotic, and is just downright foolish. Paul says, be passionate about serving Christ. Stephen says, be prepared to witness. Barnabas says, keep the mission moving forward. And then I go all the way back to Peter. Peter says, listen, you have to daily rely on the Holy Spirit. If these four guys were here giving this information to us, standing here telling us these are the things that you need to do, when we reflect back on our lives and thinking about our personal lives, would those things be things that we value? I hope they would. We may not be doing well in those things. We may not be, we may not be doing well at the witnessing part, like Stephen says, or being prepared for witnessing, like Stephen says. Our passion, well, about serving, sometimes, right? Some weeks we're passionate. Other weeks we're like, I mean, would we be doing well? Would we daily rely on the Holy Spirit? Like actively say, Holy Spirit, I need you to ride on my back today because it's going to be a bad day. I mean, actively, actively. Or Barnabas, you know, no matter what it takes, I just got to keep the mission moving forward. I just got to keep moving forward. I just got to keep moving forward. Whatever it takes. I don't care if I get the glory for it. Who cares? I could care less. I just got to keep the mission moving forward. I hope that each four of these character traits if we were to look at our lives, that we'd say that, yes, those are true in my life. Or if they're not true, I am working on those things. Because we're all what? We're all work in progress.